Hi, everyone. This is the post IPOS edition of Interview with the PD Pod 2023. I saw many of you at IPOS, and I think that it was a really tremendous meeting. Sukhan Shah and Derek Kelly really did a terrific job, and it was a lot of fun to catch up with a lot of you, old friends, mentors, mentees, and just everything that makes it such a great meeting. My guest this month is Kevin Shea, and we actually met in person at IPOS this year, which is a treat. I always enjoy in-person interviews whenever possible. Kevin is a bit of a force of nature. He is a, within the presidential line of POSNA, but he's the Director of Sports Medicine and Assistant Surgeon-in-Chief for Quality at Stanford. But it's incredibly interesting to hear how he got there as he initially started out in private practice in Boise, Idaho, and really came to Stanford in part because of his friendship with one of his co-fellows, Steve Frick, former positive president, but also because of really a desire to participate in the academic world in a little bit of a different way and to further his work in quality, safety, value at a higher level. Kevin is well known for his work in quality. He's actually been on the quality council for the AAOS. He's led a CPG for the WAOS PED section. He's headed the POSNA QSVI for many years, as well as been really the point person on the Safe Surgeon program uh, that came out a couple of years ago and has recently been worked into the U.S. News metric. So I think that this is a really interesting conversation, and Kevin had a number of incredibly insightful points on where we are, where we're going, and some of the challenges that he's faced along the way that I think really make it for a, an entertaining discussion. Thank you again, as always, for listening, for your support of this podcast and this idea. Uh, thanks again to Carter Clement and the rest of the team for helping produce it. And I wish everyone a wonderful new year, and I look forward to seeing you at the annual meeting in 2024 in Washington, D.C. Kevin, I'm going to formally welcome you into the podcast today. Thank you for doing this. Uh, we're at the IPOS meeting. It's a beautiful day outside. And we did have the opportunity to chat for a little bit last night, which was sort of fun as well. So thanks for doing this. Oh, Nick, uh, pleasure. And uh, yeah, just spend a little more uh, kind of one-on-one -on -one time with you is uh, yeah, really a great opportunity for me. So thank you. Absolutely. So um, you are uh, a Western, a product of a Western uh, upbringing. You grew up, in, it looks like, in Montana and in California. I know yeah. we, from our talk last night and just sort of my knowledge of you that you were really big into sports. Tell me a little about your childhood growing up. Uh, I was actually born in Kansas. My dad had uh, been in Germany in the military for uh, five years as a physician and uh, moved back to Kansas where he was from. And then I was born there, but my dad decided to leave pediatrics uh, to become an anesthesia critical care person. So we went to Minnesota for a couple of years. He retrained there. And then he had played semi-pro baseball <clears throat> in Montana for a couple summers. And he fell in love with Montana and fly fishing. So his first job out of Minnesota was Great Falls, Montana. So that's where I kind of had grade school. And I, I think of myself as that sort of a Montana formative years. And uh, so I really enjoyed my time there. But then my mom had some health issues with cold weather and uh, had some autoimmune stuff and it, uh, needed a warmer climate. So my dad looked in Florida, Arizona, and California, and there was a place that needed an anesthesiologist and a critical care doc in Central California in a kind of a farming community. Okay. Uh, Visalia, California. And so we moved there, and I went to kind of middle high school there. And so that sort of my, my high school years, and sports were always a big big part of my life. And to this day, I 
you know, try to keep pretty active doing all kinds of different things. Uh, but yeah, so, but my, I think developing a love for the outdoors, part of, you know, grew up in Montana. My dad just loved to be outside and fly fish. And so we spent a lot of time out, outside backpacking and camping, hiking and, and like. But your sports upbringing was a little bit of sort of the traditional sports. So in other words, yeah. the soccer, baseball, not like rock climbing or that kind of thing that are a little bit more popular nowadays, especially out, out west. Yeah, th- those were sort of later. It's kind of, you know, um, football, baseball, wrestling, track, yep. and soccer. You know, so those were all four sports I did um, quite a bit. At, but I, later I did some rock climbing and I got started high, cycling in high school. And that sort of changed my life as kind of... Really, I still, still do a little bit of running, but uh, become a pretty avid cyclist and started mountain biking before mountain biking was really a sport. Yeah. And to this day, I'm still a pretty avid mountain biker. But you were cycling uh, for fun. You weren't on a team or anything like that, which uh, is a little bit unique as a high schooler because I feel like a lot of people are either team-based or they don't play, they don't do yeah, that activity. There were, uh, in North America, there really aren't too many opportunities. At least when I was a kid, there yeah. weren't many opportunities to, to compete cycling-wise, but uh, lots of opportunity to cycle. But not competitive sports. Competitive sports for cycling have changed. You know, uh, the, one of the fastest sports in North America right now is mountain biking teams for high schools. Yeah, uh, there's I think three or four thousand high schools now who have mountain bike clubs, and uh, including California and Idaho. Uh, but uh, that didn't exist when I was a kid. So it was just the the joy and and sometimes it was social. I had some friends who would like to go out and do some long term cycling, and especially mountain biking. Mountain biking tends to be a little bit like golf. You usually go with a small yep. two, two to four people. It's kind of perfect for mountain biking. Yeah, I actually quit <clears throat> soccer as a senior because I was not quite good enough to get on varsity and did the mountain biking team, and it was awesome. Learned how to, you know, sort of piece together a bike. I ended up working in a bike shop for a year. I, I don't bike much anymore. Atlanta's a little bit difficult to uh, to cycle in. If and yep. with younger kids, it sort of went away, but it'll come back. But it's definitely a great skill to have and I think also gives you the opportunity to have a social network but also have an individual activity so yeah sometimes nice to just get on the bike and hammer out for 30 miles and and not have anybody around yeah no I in Idaho I had a a guy that I read with on regular basis he was one of the the quality officers for OB-GYN and some surgical services and we used to have we kind of joke but we'd we'd pick a long like one hour climb in the foothills outside of Boise and We'd literally, occasionally, we'd tape a note card to our handlebars about here's the five things we got to talk about while we climb for the next hour. Because when you're going downhill, there's no time to talk. You're just flying downhill. But you can do an hour climb and have a pretty effective, undistracted meeting. Yeah. Uh, And I've got a group in a a bunch of Stanford faculty and students that we ride with on a pretty regular basis. On most Saturday mornings, we have anywhere from three to 11 people go out and mountain bike ride. So it's uh, it's very, very, it can be very social, uh, but also, uh, you know, just. A lot of fun to be outside and spend time with people. Yeah, that's so. great. So, uh, so a little bit off script, but any injuries from mountain biking? It's it's one um, of those sports that, that <clears throat> always scares me a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I think mountain biking definitely has a level of risk, but you can really control your risk by how fast you go downhill. And, and I grew up riding motorcycles and ATVs without helmets. You know, kind of crazy. Pediatric orthopedist dream, yeah, right just there. Dream. And, uh, <laughs> and so I think you you develop some ski some skills from that young thing. So mountain biking and skiing are sports you got to be careful picking up. And you're old yeah as you get older because they're they can be risky and going over the handlebars can end badly but um you know i got hit by a car in october last year oh wow my fifth time getting hit by cars and so i'm my road bike has been on the rack since yeah. october uh, i haven't been on it since then broke my nose and almost got killed it was very wow and so i my road biking days i'd say are essentially over but yeah. I'm mainly gravel and i'd say i'm almost exclusively gravel and mountain bike now i gotcha so uh, you can control your risks on a mountain bike with your speed and skill. Yep. On a road, you can't 
predict what cars are going to do. Yep, yep. So, yeah, we've had a number of people, including one of my partners, who's gotten hit a couple times uh, yep. in uh, in Atlanta. So we talked a little bit last night. You were one of seven. Yeah. Um, so big family, Roman Catholic. You were the youngest, and we were, it was interesting to hear because as the youngest, a lot of people who get sort of left alone go off to their own devices. But you were very resourceful and were, uh, it sounds like, Mr. Fix-It around the house. Um, was that, uh, you know, you, you were talking about how you were given a credit card and able to just sort of go out and buy things to repair the stuff around the house. Was that mechanical inclination something that you always had, that you always developed, and that you think led into this path? Um, well, first, uh, <clears throat> I have two older sisters and then me, three younger brothers. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry, so I was third, uh, third in the line of seven. But... Um, yeah, I, I don't know what happened, but at a very young age, I just like taking stuff apart. I, uh, my mom, I don't quite remember this, but my mom says I took the washing machine apart when I was six and I, the clothes washer and fixed it. And I don't quite remember that fully, but that's a story of, uh, she told. But I did love taking things apart, and by the time I was eight, I could take a Briggs and Stratton engine apart and drill out the carburetor, and I started racing minibikes and go karts, and actually. Uh, used to make money because people loved to ride and race go-karts and so I would just sell rides on my, no my go-karts and minibikes and by nine or ten I was really good at working on cars and uh, took auto shop in high school it was interesting I was um, you know taking sort of the college prep courses and I wanted to take auto shop and they wouldn't let me and so my parents actually had to file an appeal with the school board to allow a kid who's on the college track to take you know metal shop and yeah an auto shop, and so I had a ton of fun. Because auto shop, I usually take it like at 6.30 a.m. It was like a pre-course. You could go in at 6.30 for an hour and a half course early in the morning. And um, So I used to love auto shop, but I'd go the rest of my class. I'd go to calculus class where I don't have grease on my fingers, yeah. you know. But uh, yeah, I just loved working on stuff, fixing stuff. And uh, I had a lawnmower, lawn mowing business from about 10 on. I mowed lawns and shoveled snow to make money. And uh, But part of the deal with my dad was you can use a lawnmower, but you got to make sure you mow our lawn first. Yeah. And you have to keep all the equipment working. So, yeah. So I just became very mechanical with wood and, and metal and kind of self-taught welder and yeah. just like working on stuff from a very young age. So with a, a, a father who is a physician, your mechanical inclination, was the path towards orthopedics sort of an obvious one at the beginning? Or did you go off to college thinking, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do and we'll just sort of figure it out? Yeah, it's interesting because my dad wasn't mechanical at all. Like I, I can't tell you the number of times my dad would have to walk to a gas station uh, and call one of us to pick him up because he'd run out of gas. And he had a couple times where he burned up an engine because he forgot to put oil in it. And so uh, my dad wasn't mechanical at all. And so I didn't really inherit it from him, but his father was quite mechanical. Um, so maybe I got it from him. But uh, yeah, my uh, dad was an anesthesiologist, initially a pediatrician, then retrained in anesthesia and critical care and did a little bit of both. Um, you know, I was a biology and philosophy major, and I thought a little bit about getting a PhD in philosophy and maybe being a college professor. Uh, but I really thought most seriously about being a teacher. And I actually, oh, really? I taught, I took a, a year off between my first and second year of college and taught fifth and sixth graders. And then between co- uh, college, I got into med school, deferred for a year, taught fifth and sixth graders again, and almost went and became a high school teacher. I was going to get my teaching uh, credential. And my high school biology teacher, who remained a dear friend of mine my whole life, uh, talked me out of being a teacher. He said, you need to go to med school. And so he was probably the person who... To this day, I still haven't fully forgiven him for talking me out of being a teacher because I would have been real happy as a high school teacher and a coach. Yeah. Well, it seems like you're pretty happy as a orthopedic yeah. surgeon as well. So, and you get to teach. Yeah. And, you know, the doctor, the translation of doctor is teacher. Teacher. So, yeah. yeah so I guess I'm, I'm just a little different teacher than I initially planned. Yeah. So uh, when you got to med school, how was the path into orthopedics? Again, with the mechanical inclination, was it something that, was, that became natural pretty quickly and that was where you wanted yeah. to go? 
Yeah, um, it's interesting. A lot of people pegged me as an orthodox from the day I got in, but I, uh, my third year of med school, I'd actually arranged to do a research year with American Heart Association Research Fellowship working in a cardiology pulmonary physiology lab. And I did some interesting exercise physiology research in my first two years, uh, studying a lab where the term anaerobic threshold actually came from a guy named Carlman Wasserman, and he was emeritus by that time. But I worked in his lab where the wow. lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, came from one of his papers he published in the 50s or 60s. And so spent a lot of time in that lab, and I was used a lot as a test subject in the lab for exercise physiology testing. And so I really enjoyed that lab. And, and my last month of my surgery rotation, I think I had two or three months, uh, I was on orthopedics. And I'm, I'm a month from starting my fellowship, and I'm a week into this orthopedic rotation. And I said, wow, this is really fun. Maybe I shouldn't be a cardiologist or, physio- or a pulmonologist. And so I had this major reset that, wow. one, I decided not to do the fellowship, which was disappointing to the wonderful faculty who I was going to work with for a year. But then I had to pivot into orthopedics. And so it was kind of a late, very late decision. Last month of my third year of med school, I decided not to do cardiology, pulmonology, and switch into orthopedics. So it was a late transition. Were there mentors who sort of brought you along, or that was totally a a personal decision? I think it was just a personal decision. I was just in the OR, and I knew a little bit about orthopedics because when I was in high school and in college, I, I worked in a surgery center. And I basically was the scribe. I cleaned the OR. I cleaned instruments. I cleaned the OR. I rubbed the yeah. mop with a, you know, this antiseptic bucket. And so I sort of occasionally would watch uh, some surgeries. There was a lot of ENT and orthopedics and some OB-GYN at this surgery center that I worked at. But um, until I was actually in the OR, scrubbed in. And, you know, I think it was also a small surgery center doing little teeny things was very different than being in a big trauma center where you saw some cool trauma and some big cases and mm-hmm. spine and total joints. And I said, wow, this is really very mechanically. Yep. It just seemed like this is mechanics in many ways. And uh, so that was the kind of late transition. And you ended up going to Utah for your residency, which yeah. I'm sure was, I mean, knowing your loves, that's got to be about as ideal a spot to, to yeah. train for five years. The mountains are 30 minutes away and the uh, and the, the city itself is beautiful. And then there, yeah. I, I know a lot of people there. So the diversity in terms of pathology that you see has got to be great. Yeah, yeah. great mix of... Um, a uh, very high osteoarthritic population for some reason. So we did a lot of total joints, but there was a lot of trauma. Yeah. And so it was a nice mix of that. And, and probably the, the, the real jewel was less than a mile and a half apart was a Shrine Hospital and Primary Children's Medical Center. So you have this amazing academic medical center, Primary Children's, and this amazing Shrine Hospital. And I still have this incredibly warm spot in my heart for the Shrine system, for the people I worked with. There and uh, my second year residency, um, I got three months at the Shrine and three months at Primary Children's. And we had a full year, uh, at least a year, as residents to work at those two hospitals. And I just was there, and every day from day one at Primary Children and day one at the Shrine, it was just the happiest place of my whole residency. And much of my residency was wonderful, uh, but um, the Shrine and the Primary Children's Medical Center were just amazing places. And I said, I want to be part of this community. So yeah. that was so so early on <clears throat> that sort of picked you up and, and lifted you up into peds. Yeah, that and I really like <clears throat> sports to, uh, and total joints and tumor. I, and and I thought about <laughs> doing you know doing both of those with peds, but uh, or doing two of those with peds. Um, but uh, there was the pediatric community is a little bit different. I mean, I love the sports, but the community is not quite the same. As it, someone asked me this years ago, early on my career, about what I like so much about peds and sports. Um, but I think the thing about peds that struck me most is most pediatric orthopedists and POSNA 
they have sort of a, a priority list. Life is about making priority lists, right? What's most important and what's least important, but sometimes you have to focus on all three or four. Yeah. Uh, but POSNA, most POSNA members, and I think the culture of the organization is what's best for the child and the family, what's best for the community, and then what's best for me, and in that order. And we all have to be self-industry to some degree. It's important. Yep. Uh, but the priority list was children and family one, community two, and my individual needs as a physician, whether it's economic, autonomy, whatever. But we were always secondary to the community and family and children. And so I really like that. And I think the joy of coming to meetings like IPOS and talking to you and talking to people last night and meeting young mentees and is there, there's this cultural focus on, and I think it's that order. It's children and family, uh, it's community, and what's best for our profession. And uh, it's not bad to be focused on your own interests, but I think that when you're a part of something that uh, has a mission that's bigger than yourself, I think it's easier to really believe in that organization. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's, for all of us in who went into pediatrics, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I think that there, it's, this is not a self-serving profession. This is, you know, a truly special opportunity to provide care for kids and for families and to be, you know, a soother and to be a, to truly sort of be a healer. And, and I feel like that's a little bit unique within orthopedics sometimes. And we've all got friends who have gone off and, you know, taken paths that are towards venture capital backed practices and, and peds that just isn't even an issue. You know, it, it never sort of comes up. This is the, yeah. the focus continues to be on, on the kids. So that's great. And, and uh, you know, Rady, obviously very special place for you. We talked a little yeah. bit last night. You had amazing um, co-fellows, and we talked about some of the, the educators. But that process of getting to Rady and what you sort of learned and how Rady shaped you for going out, and we'll talk about your subsequent travels afterwards. But yeah. Talk a little bit about that year, because it's a pretty special place, especially when you were there. I mean, you were there really at the height of Scott Mubarak and Dennis Wenger's career, and um, yeah. and I think that it's, it's a pretty unique time to be there. Yeah, and it was um, pretty remarkable. And I had um, you know I had some wonderful people in, in Salt Lake who really were super supportive and just ecstatic that I was choosing Pete. You know, Sherm Coleman, yeah. Susan Yandel, Peter Stevens, John Smith, um, Steve Scott. I mean, you just had some amazing examples people like oh, I'd like to be like any of these people if I could be like them I would be as I would have a good life and uh, and Sherm Coleman really wanted me to go to TSRH and I interviewed with Tony Heron and Charlie Johnston and Steve Richards and some amazing people in there and I, I really agonized over that decision and basically like many decisions you know Lonnie my partner she said you know could we go to San Diego not Texas and that was a that not that was the only part, but a huge part of it was my wife really didn't want to go to Texas for a year because I would have loved to have gone to TSRH. Yeah. And Tony Herring and many of those people are have become some dear friends of mine. Tony in particular has become a very dear friend of mine. But So I got to go to UC San Diego, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, Wenger and Mubarak were sort of at the peak of their intellectual, you know, I think ferocity is probably the right word because yeah. they're, they're ferocious intellectuals and ferocious interpersonal conflict from time to time in a very stimulating educational way, part put on for... Um, educational stimulation, and yeah. it was remarkable. But I had Hank Chambers, one of the finest humans I've ever met, yeah. um, Doug Wallace, an amazing person, and Peter Newton early in his career. And so, you know, you can imagine that the, what an amazing group of people to be affiliated with for a year. Yeah. And I loved it. And my, you know, we worked really hard. It was pretty exhausting, but Steve and I, 
was the start of my friendship with Steve, a lifelong friendship with Steve and Steve Frick. Frick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, just uh, remarkable. And uh, um, Neil McInerney, our other fellow, was, yep. was amazing. And um, but it was an it was just an amazing year. And we um, the intellectual stimulation, the case volume. The trauma call beat us up a little bit. Yeah, uh, and we definitely that's kinda, what I've heard. <laughs> we, we got beat up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but the the good thing about that is, when I arrived in Boise, you know, I, I was pretty well trained. I thought I was pretty well trained in resident, in particular adult trauma and a lot of things I could do pretty well. And I felt total joints. I did a lot of total joints, and I was really good with trauma. But um, I grew tremendously, partly because uh, Scott McBarrett came in for my first call day. And he watched me operate, and he said, "That's it. I'm not coming in." So, <laughs> so for the rest of the year, I was on my own, which is a bit intimidating because yeah. during your residency, you've always they weren't always in the room, but there was usually someone checking in from time to time, and uh, especially with really big trauma cases. And uh, but I was Scott said, "Okay, you, I'm going to tell everyone we don't need to come in and work with you." And yeah. I ended up, Are you sure you don't want to hang out a little longer? And uh, but so you you grew very quickly, and we saw you know we had a term for superconductibles we call it AFE and. I won't tell you what the yeah, F stands yeah, for, yeah. but another F elbow, yeah. just because they were so common. But you beca- I don't want to say you became fearless, but you, be- you developed a level of competence and confidence and efficiency yep. where really difficult things didn't bother you much anymore, open femurs or you know whatever you had. And so it was a great, uh, great experience, uh, intense. And Steve and I just had a very joyful year working yeah. there. In, well, in, in all in all measures. Let me ask you this, and it's a, a little bit off track from sort of my line of questioning, but that. Uh, experience is very different than what I had in Dallas, and um, I had a great year in Dallas. But the I think the one thing that you lacked a little bit in Dallas, and also we're a little bit generationally different, so that may have been part of the reason. But you know, we our call was not the same. We didn't have uh, any autonomy on call to do cases because we didn't take primary call at Dallas Children's, and so. We would go in, and, and we, t- we did a month of trauma, and it was sort of uh, traditionally one of the challenges of the fellowship. But either way, now, in 2023, it's a little bit different monster to replicate what you had there. Um, and so, like, when we take call, mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and we've had, we have unbelievable fellows. I mean, our fellows right now, even halfway through the year, very trusting of them. But the concept of just being like, yep, look good, see you later, is, and especially doing that in, in, in September is yeah. a little bit of uh, days of yore. And how do you allow that to occur in 2023? Um, how, you and Steve, having trained at the same place, you could sort of try to replicate a little bit, but how do you give people that autonomy and still yeah. stay safe? Yeah, and I think the, the safety thing is, is really important. And you know, it, I think it may depend on the individual person, their exposure and background. You know, Some people came from a, a very heavy elective setting and maybe not so heavy trauma setting and, and vice versa. Some people come from very high trauma service. Uh, we had a fellow a couple years ago, Tyler Stabenoa, who I was just, I remember the first time working with Tyler, just this kid has clearly done a lot of surgery. I think he went to Tulane and I was just very confident, confident that I didn't need to worry about Tyler at all. Um, and he had an amazing year, but clearly had had a lot of trauma. We've had other fellows who didn't necessarily come from that mm-hmm. level of trauma experience. Uh, we may not have that level of comfort with lots of complex stuff coming at you fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've been fortunate, like you said, the, uh, the, the intellectual talent that we get in our fellows is really remarkable. Um, and some get a little more experience, just that hands-on experience, kind of like being, you need the reps. It's like, an, it's like a wide receiver. You've got to run a couple hundred of those out routes or go routes before you're really good at it. You know how to... You know, position yourself between the linebacker and the defensive back and find space. And uh, it's kind of the same thing in the order where you're trying to be as efficient and thoughtful and anticipation 
uh, of what's going to happen. But um, I think intellectually people are really well developed and the access to information, the ease at your fingertips of whatever source of information very quickly. We used to have to have books, yeah. right? From those yeah. We'd have to have yeah. books, okay? You would bring your books to the OR. You go yeah. to the library and have to drag a book yeah. in your backpack to the, to the OR. And, uh, but now, so the, the ability to be intellectually engaged and prepared is remarkable. And residents and fellows have really benefited from that. And it makes them remarkably well prepared intellectually. But sometimes the, 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 um, the layout of the OR, the planning, simple things like where do you put the serum when you pin a supercondor? Yeah. Or you can do a femur. I tell people, don't give yourself surgeon toward a college. You have to kind of think about these things ahead of time. And if you if you do it wrong a couple of times, you realize, oh, that made the case 5% or 10% more difficult. And so I think our goal for the fellows a lot of times is just to help them be as fast sell and efficient as possible. Because I think most of them, quite frankly, are pretty safe. Yep. Um, but it's a matter of let's make them as efficient and fast sell as possible. And, and I, I'd say that's one of the nice things about the high-level reps that we got in San Diego. And also just the OR crews were really good. Yeah. And so if you weren't sort of seeing the field ahead of time, the OR, um, I'd put the CRM on the left side, not on the right side. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so the OR crews are very helpful. And that's a, uh, a comment I'll make about anyone uh, early on in your career is healthcare is a team sport. Support your team. Listen to your team. They'll make you better. And uh, be really good to your teammates. Uh, the people who clean the OR, they're really important. The people who update the CRM. I mean, the people who scrub the instruments, the people who prep the ORs. I mean, mm-hmm. these people are amazing. And if you treat them well, treat them like any good teammate, mm-hmm. they'll go out of their way to make the OR run as efficiently as possible. So look around, get cues from the team because uh, they'll help you be a better surgeon, especially early on in your career where you're new place or you haven't quite done 20 of these. Or so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Dave Skaggs <laughs> has said before in a talk, on teams, he's like, you know, I always hear people say, I can't, I can't remember everybody's name. And he goes, do you know how many facts you've memorized as a PGY-1? You can figure out 20 people's names and remember them who you see every day. And I think yeah. it's, a, it's always stuck with me. Um, I want to talk uh, a little bit about your travels because I was shocked. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So you did essentially traveling fellowships uh, with Gons. Mm-hmm. You went to Lecco, Italy. Mm-hmm. You did trauma and you did sports overseas. Yeah. So A, how did you do that? And then B, well, B, how did you talk your wife into letting you do that? Yeah. And C, um, what sort of, what was the impetus behind such a broad education after such a great education at, yeah. at Rady? Um, you know, I didn't really travel internationally at all as a college kid. And in medical school, our medical school, while I was there, one of my classmates formed a partnership through Occidental Petroleum and uh, Armin Hammer, who had spent much of his career in Russia, was fluent in Russia, and had opened Western oil companies to Russian oil field access. And so he had strong uh, relations with Russia. So he, Armin Hammer, funded and set up an exchange program between UCLA and this, it was the fracturing Soviet Union at the time. The Soviet Union started to break down. And anyway, there was a lot of anxiety over nuclear war, and Armin Hammer was really remarkably supportive uh, of this program. And so I got a chance to go to Russia for six weeks as a medical student and just, I just blew up. And it was amazing to see first a first world military, but a third world healthcare system where the hospital, the front of the hospital is beautiful chrome architecture, but behind all that was uh, resources from the 1910s, 1920s and a very limited resource in the hospitals, but remarkably well-trained physicians who... Huh were trained in Latin and were trained, they had to write all the diagnoses in Latin in the charts. Uh, they were fluent in multiple languages, including English. They mainly had access to, there was more English textbooks around uh, than there were native language textbooks. And so remarkably well-trained physicians. 
So the experience of a, as a med student spending six weeks in the Soviet Union and seeing, I kind of saw a lot of it, um, a lot of different specialties. The woman I lived with, her mother was a urologist. She was a fourth-year med student going into uh, going into cardiology. Who she subsequently immigrated to the United States, but just an amazing experience and sparked a love of travel. And so I had an opportunity to do an AO fellowship, and I got to work with Hans Stoibli, a sports medicine guy. I think I learned more about ACL and meniscus than anyone. Uh, and then uh, Diego Fernandez, a hand trauma guy, a lot of work with him, and then Gantz for hip. And so that was just an amazing experience. Then, um, obviously, San Diego. Went back to Italy for um, the Lizarov Fellowship. Uh, spent time in Lecco. And also got to spend a fair amount of time with Reinhard Zeller in Paris, doing spine surgery with Reinhard. And so those were just, just mind-changing culturally. Wow. It made me realize, especially when I was in Russia, we're all the same. We all love our family, our community. And we all want a better future for our children. That, to me, are the two things that unite all of us. Um, and so I was really impressed by that when I was in Russia and the Soviet bloc countries, despite all the yep. national tension. But the ability to see the... Because I, I didn't go as a tourist and live in the hotels. I lived in people's homes. Yeah. I ate at their breakfast tables. And so it was a very different experience in all my international travel. I really was integrated into the healthcare system and the community. Um, and then I did the South American Traveling Sports Fellowship about 10 years later and... Uh, it's just wonderful to see how other people solve problems and how talented physicians are in the rest of the world. And in many cases, they operate with a lot less resources and supplies, and yet they do remarkably good work. And in some ways, I think you're more talented when you can do really good work, and yet you don't have the luxurious resources that we just take for granted. Yep. We get upset that we don't have the latest serum technology in our room. In some place in the world, they don't have, a, they have one serum in the whole hospital. Yeah. And it's probably not going to be available for you to be a surgeon today. Yeah. You know, so uh, just, it just creates a sense of openness to other ideas from other people, but also a sense of humility that there's a lot of really talented people out there, and you shouldn't think that your training was the best necessarily. There's lots of great people doing really creative things everywhere in the world yeah. every day. Can we talk a little bit about Boise? Um, because one of the reasons that, I mean, well, I've known you now for a while, but one of the reasons I think that you're so unique is that you went to Boise, were very successful in Boise. And then opted to go into academics. We'll get into sort of that decision maybe a little bit later. But a lot of people probably go the other way, right? So a lot yeah. of people are going from academics and get burned out in sort of the academic hamster wheel and say, you know what, I'm going to go hang a shingle and figure this out. Um, but you went to Boise, and at least in discussing last night, I think you learned a tremendous number of things that have that are a helping you now, but just sort of uh, problem solving and solutions to uh, challenging dynamics politically within a group, and then also building a practice. Um, and it's it's also interesting to think based on all the travels that you had done, and you'd done you know you'd gone and worked with Gans and with uh, and done a, a Ilzara fellowship and all these things, and then to go into a private practice community and be sort of, I assume, a little bit more of a generalist, uh, um, how, those, how those work. So tell me about sort of the decision to go to Boise and sort of what, what, what that gave you. Yeah, uh, partly at the time, there weren't a lot of pediatric orthopedic jobs available. And I, I looked at a few jobs, and um, they didn't seem like great opportunities. And there was going to be a job at the University of Utah, but they told me they would have funding in about two or three years. And they said, hey, we'd love to bring it back to be a Pete sports person in two or three years. Um, that was kind of when they didn't really have any. Pete sports wasn't really especially, but we talked about coming back and letting me do Pete sports. But they said, it's gonna, we don't have a job right now, so maybe in two or three years we get funding. So Boise was part, had a, a good friend there named Buzz Showalter, who'd been a chief resident when I was a second year resident, and uh, he was up there in practice. And so he had talked to me about coming out there. I, it was, you know, Boise, I remember fishing near the Boise River as a kid with my dad. 
uh, coming over from uh, Great Falls. So Boise was a nice place, and Idaho is a beautiful state to live. So part of it was that. Um, but the job opportunities weren't great. But the other thing, um, Dennis Winger talked to me. He said something to me because I Dennis offered me a job to think about staying in San Diego. And um, we thought about that a little bit. Um, but part, you know, the cost of living was really high in San Diego, and I had some bills to pay. And uh, and just cost of living was so high, and salary wasn't that great. And, you know, um, so that was part of it. But Dennis actually he told me something. He, he, uh, I still remember telling him, he said, you should go to Boise. And he said, if anyone can make it work outside of Academic Center, he said, I think you can do it. And it was interesting him giving me that advice because I thought he was going to be disappointed in me that, that I wasn't going to take an academic job somewhere, even though there weren't that many, but he thought I should have at least taken one. But he encouraged me to go to Boise and said, if anyone can make it work, it's you. And uh, it's interesting because there's times in your life where people say things and you remember them saying it, but you, at the time, you're not quite sure what that means because uh, I didn't really understand what he thought. But as I look back now, 20-some years later, he somehow thought I'd be able to find a way to make it work. So I went to Idaho, and I did... I was, you know, worked really hard because I was taking an adult call, and there was two pediatric orthopedists in the state, and we tried every other, every other night call and every other weekend call for about four years, and our wives finally got together and said, you're done, man. There's no more 24-7 peds worth of call because it's killing both of you, and they were, and my, our wives were right, and so Buzz and I, uh, who were taking adult call and peds call, uh, we kind of went back into regular call schedule, but what ended up happening, though, was my adult partners who weren't very comfortable with peds trauma, especially after four years of not doing any, there was sort of an unofficial PEDS call because whenever a PEDS case came in, they would expect us to come in and do it. And uh, so uh, it was pretty hard. You know, that's a lot of call burden and a lot of sleep disruption, which, you know, for your early on in your career, you're good at working hard and you've been a chief resident. You're sort of used to getting beat up, but it's not sustainable long term. Yeah. So uh, word to the wise, make sure that you pick a job that's sustainable with your quality of life and your family and downtime. Um, so probably a mistake I made early on, but uh Joined a private practice group that was very innovative. Um, we were the first private practice group in the United States that had a digital x-ray system. 1999, we were fully digital x-ray, and we had no office MRI. So our x-ray and MRI were integrated. You know, digital x-ray doesn't sound like everyone has it now, yeah. but back then, no, we were the first private practice in the U.S. to do it. We had a very forward-thinking board, and a board member in particular named Paul Collins, who did a lot of very innovative things for us. But I learned a lot being on a board. Uh, they, put, they made me a board member from the day I got there, and... Uh, learned a lot about managing conflict and how private practices run. I mean, these are basically small entrepreneurs who are running a business, and at the end of the day, they've got to be businessmen. And so I feel like I got an MBA in small business management over the first 10 years of my practice because we had uh, we ran a surgery center, we had a research company, we had a DME company, we had a physical therapy company, and we had an imaging company, all separate business lines from the clinical practice company. And so we had to run all five, six of those business lines as a separate business entity and a P&L statement, you know, we'd read profit and loss statements every month. We had an MBA business manager. And so we learned a lot. And so I grew up, a, I grew up quickly in terms of financial sophistication and how you balance your books and how you make investments for the future, especially when you're at risk for a bad investment. You make a bad decision as a businessman, there's no, there's no health system to bail you out. Yep. There's just a bank that said, you borrowed money, you got to make the payments on that loan. And so I, I, I grew up um, quickly in the financial world. Yeah. I feel like I got an MBA just doing that work. Um, we became a, a closely aligned partner with an accountable care organization about my 12th year in practice there. And so uh, philosophically, I've, I've always thought accountable care organizations are kind of where we need to go. The concept of you're responsible for the quality and you're responsible for the cost. And you got to look at both. You have to look at cost and quality. 
So I got really interested in the whole ACO methodology, and then I got involved with the evidence uh, committees at the academy and the outcomes committee at the academy early on in my career. And so that provoked a sense of sort of this business financial focus, but also this quality outcomes focus. And um, you know, prom, we're all talking about proms now, but we've been talking about proms for 25 years. It's just we're getting more serious about it now. And so between that proms focus, that outcome focus, and that focus on value, meaning outcome, high quality divided by cost, you know, same outcome at lower cost is better value. And so for the last 10 years, I've really tried to think more about value. We all want high quality, but we can't be agnostic to cost anymore. And so I've had this sort of focus on the finances, um, not just running a business well, but how do we provide better health care at the same or lower cost and get better value for our community? Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, I want to come back to that. But I, I want to, you mentioned, and you talked about this a little bit last night, sort of conflict resolution, which is tough. I think for a lot of us as children's orthopedists, we're the happy-go-lucky people in the in groups. And it's one thing when you're part of a peds group and so the people you're interacting with are, are similar but it's different when at least you know when i was at emory for example um uh, just purely on the emory faculty there were two of us in a group of 100 and the peds people sometimes get a little bit either marginalized or it's and not even marginalized i think we were we're just different than everybody else you know the uh you have you know a, a big joints group and a big sports group and so conflicts come up a lot between different divisions, between uh, different people within the group. And I'm curious if you had any thoughts or, or lessons learned through, for conflict re- resolution in a multi-specialty group in particular that had probably an eye on the bottom line a lot of times, and that was what was driving the conflict. Uh, yeah, and, there, and that is one of the issues in a private practice is the bottom line. You know, if you don't pay attention to the bottom line, no, no mission, no margin, whether you're in a nonprofit or a for-profit, you really have to focus on that. But, um, you know, in terms of conflict management, there's a, a lot of good things you can read. There's a book, um, I'm blanking on its name right now, uh, Crucial Conversations, uh, that talks about uh, conflicts usually come down to a couple things. You have, you have two parties. They both have different positions. They both feel very strongly that their position is the correct one and the other position is the wrong one, and there's an emotional element. And so when you combine all three of those things, the opportunity for conflict, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's like a bonfire. You know, it's just, all you need is a spark, and it's just explosive. And so this book talks a lot about recognizing the emotional drivers of conflict, not just the conflict itself, but the emotional state that people get into. And so developing the ability to listen and to shut your mouth, quite frankly, just listen. You know, do a little listening, take notes reflect and think um, and work on really understanding the conflicts but also help people separate the actual content of the conflict from the emotional element is really important, both for you as someone who might be in the middle of the conflict or if you're trying to help manage the conflict. And so that's not a skill that most of us have, and I don't. Uh, I didn't get those skills from my family. My dad was not good at managing conflict. My dad was good at creating conflict. He wasn't good at managing it. And so I, I learned in part looking at my mistakes and sort of not managing conflicts well. And it's kind of a learned, a learned thing. Like you make a mistake in the OR and you go, I don't want to make that again. And you make a mistake with a conflict. If you're reflective, you'll say, um, okay, I could have done that better. And then, okay, how would I do that better next time? And so I think there are courses and there are really good books. But that book, um, Crucial Conversations, is really, really very helpful. So reading that early in my career really helped. I also had some really good people, a guy named Howard King, who you all may yeah. know the name, used to be the King classification before the Lanky classification. Howard joined our practice. He left academics, okay. came yeah. to Boise, Idaho. Uh, he was about 52, so he'd done a lot of really remarkable academic things, but decided to make a transition. And so my, I think, second year of practice, he joined me, and he was a remarkable 
uh, mentor. And Howard was very conflict averse, did not like conflict, but when forced to be in the middle of it, he was, you know, a calm, calm hand on the rudder, you know, if you will. And so I learned a lot watching Howard manage conflict, you know, being about 20 years older than me, you know, Howard had had that experience. And so that was a great thing. Um, we had a chief medical officer who had been a pulmonologist, and I, he came to Boise the same time I did. He's now the chief medical officer of the health system. A guy named Jim Souza, who's a remarkable clinician, but also his emotional intelligence is off the chart. And I think that's part of being good at conflict management is you have to have emotional intelligence. you got to read people. And so I've had to work hard at those skills because they didn't come naturally to me, but uh, I had some great people like Jim Souza and Howard King to help with that. Yeah. That's good. Uh, that's good advice. The other thing that was unique about your time in private practice, at least from my uh, review of your uh, CV to the to the extent I can get it, is uh, you were really involved in research. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because I've had this conversation. You've probably had this conversation a million times as well with you know fellows, residents who are coming out who I think compartmentalize. If I want to do something in research, I have to go into academics. And if I want to, and if I go into private practice, that option isn't available to me. But looking at your CV, you've got like 250 publications, and nearly half of them occurred before your transition to Stanford. How did you build that, and why did you prioritize that? Because again, like you just talked about, I mean, you are running a business, and running a business, and at the same time doing something that generates zero income for the business is, is sometimes somewhat challenging. Yeah, and, and that it was feedback I got both from the health system, which was a non-academic health system, and my partners, is, hey, we'd like you to just generate some more RVUs. We got a surgery center. You know, we need you to be busy to keep the surgery center full and use the MRI. And uh, so there was definitely a, I wouldn't say I had a lot of support from my partners for it. They sort of, I would say on a good day, they tolerated it, but not too supportive of it because it didn't really align with the private practice principles of a, of a private health system, not academic. But I think part of it was is that um, I always had questions, you know, and I, and I wanted to be a better decision maker and I wanted to be a better technician. And a lot of my research is about, you know, trying to do things better, whether it's quality improvement and how you operate something, how you're on a supply chain or how you do surgical technique. And one of the things about running a surgery center is it had to be run well. And so we we became experts in supply chain and negotiating good contracts because we were at risk financially. If we negotiated about bad contracts, we paid the price as owners and operators of an ambulatory surgery center. So I got interested in supply chain stuff very early, and I've got a pretty big supply chain role at Stanford. That's one of my titles. I'm assistant surgeon in chief for quality and supply chain management. Um, but I also had a, a really in-depth experience. I feel like I got my, my master's in supply. I got my bachelor's in supply chain running an ASC and an MRI. I got my master's helping an accountable care organization health system think big, big way. How do we improve supply chain operations for an eight hospital health system? And then I sort of get my PhD in supply chain at Stanford because they have an amazing analytical team where I can use national data sets to really think about how do we have a better supply chain experience to lower cost, get better value, and have the lowest risk environment. And so the supply chain thing's been a fascinating focus of mine. And I've got quite a few publications now on supply chain and contract negotiation. And probably the most important thing is that I think I've convinced a lot of supply chain people that physicians need to be part of decision making yep. because who is going to really tell you what the best quality is? A supply chain person could look at a good company. They might look at sustainability of that company, but they can't tell you which implant's better to use. So if you're going to buy a more ped- expensive pedicle screw, the supply chain say, well, that pedicle screw is $400 in the mat pedicle screw, so let's get the $300 pedicle screw, not the $700 pedicle screw. And you will say, well, you're right, but this pedicle screw is faster, it's got more feasibility, it's more adaptable to the 40 cases I'm dealing with. And the supply team people are going to say, oh, 
I didn't know that. You're right, because you're not a clinician. And so, but clinicians don't have time to figure out the prices and negotiate the best contracts and manage expiration deals and manage recall deals. And so a supply chain partnership with physicians having a leadership decision-making role that parallels the administrative team is incredibly powerful. And so I've seen that work really well. We did that well in Boise, and we've done that pretty well at Stanford. And it's been a lot of fun to learn from amazing people in supply chain who know a lot more than I do about some supply chain stuff, but they don't have the clinical background. And getting clinicians involved with supply chain is absolutely critical if you want to run it well. It's not enough to just look at price and best contracts. You've got to have that physician oversight. So supply chain and and efficiency have been a big part. And that ties back to my piece on value. If you run a supply chain better, guess what? You can get lower prices and better values for our patients and try to bend the cost curve of healthcare, which is, we all know, not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of on the business practice side. But um, a lot of my research is on surgical technique, simulations, and anatomy. Um, anatomy is timeless. You know, I, I feel like some of my anatomy articles 100 years from now will still get cited in the literature because anatomy is... It's the one thing that doesn't change. Doesn't change. Yeah, anatomy, etiology disease doesn't change. Yeah. Anatomy doesn't change. That's something Scott McBarrick said to me early on in my career about things to look at, you know, uh, understanding disease process, the basic science behind disease, um, etiology, epidemiology, and anatomy says these things are kind of timeless. And that's not entirely true. There, there are some evolving things in anatomy and certainly etiology and idiopathic origins and things like that. But um, they are kind of timeless. But part of that was I want to be a better surgical technician. Um, I, I pride myself on being a good human mechanic, just like I'm very good at fixing things. I used to be really good at working on cars. I'm not so much anymore because I need too many computers, but I'm really good at working on really precision machinery for biking. I can weld and other things. And uh, I like to be a very efficient bicycle mechanic, but I also like to be very efficient in the OR. And a lot of my anatomy research, I think, helps me be more efficient and arguably safer than they are. So uh, um, I will say that it's hard doing research in private practice, but it's not impossible. I, I think I published 150, maybe 160 articles in 18 years in private practice, and many of them, you know, almost all of them were JBGS, AGSM, you know, JPO, I mean, not throwaway journal type stuff. And um, that, it wasn't easy, but if you're really committed, you'll, you can find a way to do it, even in private practice. Yeah. But you're going to have to work a little harder in some ways, although one thing Dennis Wenger said is that you won't necessarily have the burdens and the bureaucratic inefficiency of some academic centers, and that's true to some degree. Stanford is pretty darn supportive of research. It's actually, sometimes I wonder if I'd gone to Stanford, I probably would have published at least twice what I'd published now, because it's easier to do things at Stanford, especially residents, fellows, students yep. who are just dying to do research. None of those things existed in Boise, Idaho. Uh, but if you are if you want to make the field better, and you want to be better as a surgeon, I think you'll probably find a way to do research. And multi-center study groups, very early on in my practice, I started uh, the Rock Group, um, which sort of game-changer for me back when multi-center study groups didn't really exist for the most part in orthopedics. Um, that also allowed me to be academic outside of Boise because I could form partnerships with other centers, both academic and non-academic, and multiple um, things I've been involved with. You know, PRISM basically is a, is a, is a distributed network of multi-center study groups. We've started PRISM with Hank Chagbers, vision insight from the beginning and we all said we don't need a, a club to get together and talk about cases we need a club for research and that's why the second word is pediatric research and sports medicine and so these distributive networks of multi-center partnerships i think will allow anyone in private practice to become involved in academics if they want but yeah. you have to have the energy i also paid out of my own pocket took a salary cut to hire a research coordinator 
early on in my career. I said, hey, I want to be more effective and more productive. So I just said, I'm going to take a salary cut. I pay for my own research coordinator, and that really helped as well. Yeah, but <clears throat> I think it, it, it's, it's great. Uh, a lot of people come out either and go to a smaller group, and they think, well, it's going to take me 10 years to get enough patience to study because I'm in a small group. But one of the things that, that, I really, that really struck me when you were talking about that and that was important to me was study what you know, study what's around you. And so to your point, anatomy is always around you. Anatomy doesn't change. You don't need, I mean, you could do one case a year and still do anatomic studies if you have access to cadavers or whatnot. Um, you know, for me, it was a partner, Bob Bruce, who had created this early discharge pathway and never even bothered to look at sort of the results because from a, from a research standpoint, we were looking at it internally. Yeah. And you took something which was practice management and efficiencies of scale and all, all the business side of things and studied that because that was something that you had. And I think that for residents and fellows who are a little bit wary about, oh, I'm not going to a, to a Stanford or, or a Children's in Atlanta or a TSRH or a Rady, I'm not going to be able to do any research. There is a lot of opportunity out there if you know where to look and how to frame it. Right. So I think that's a, that's a really good point that you made. I want to go back <clears throat> a little bit to quality because I know, so that just for background for the listener. So you and I met when I was the, yeah. I don't know, I, I think it was when I was head of the QS, Spine QSVI and we were looking at the Safe Surgeon program. And, and so I got to see very early on in my exposure to POSNA, your uh, interest and love and, and passion about quality. And I, I want to ask sort of a simple question that has, I'm sure, a complex answer is, how are we doing, both at POSNA and probably at the academy level as well, about defining quality adequately? Um, and, I, and I might maybe modify that and say maybe, how are we defining value? Yeah, okay. Well, think, you know, value is, is quality <laughs> yeah. divided by cost. And so I think... Um, uh, the academy has been focused on quality for quite some time. Michael Goldberg, a pediatric orthopedist, I think I think he was a past president of Pazna, yeah. um, you know, had this vision long ago that that quality and value were really important. But I think his focus was primarily on quality because we weren't doing that really at all as an organization. Pa- a- academy wasn't. Um, they tried to do it's called modems. This was before you and I were in training, but I think it was in the early to mid '90s. The academy invested over a million dollars in trying to have this modems, which was a multi-center outcome data registry. And it was a, a great idea before its time was come. In the first couple of years of operation, they collected about 250 patients total after about a million and a half dollars of investment. It just wasn't ready. The internet wasn't so well developed, and electronic PROMs collection and dead, you know, red cap and other things didn't exist. But the, Michael Goldberg led that charge, and he was just a little bit ahead of the technology that was available, but clearly he was a leader. And he also pushed the academy kind of single-handedly, Michael Goldberg, with other people, uh, pushed the academy. And he got some early partners, including Kevin Bozick and, um, and Christy Weber, you know, 10, 15 years ago, who helped Michael with that heavy lift. But the academy has done a pretty good job. Um, the clinical practice guidelines, are, uh, they're, they're really well done. They're considered the, the best in the industry. Many other special groups come to the academy for advice about how to do clinical practice guidelines. The challenge is keeping them up to date with data coming so fast and furious now. Um, and also getting people to buy into using them has still been a little bit of a challenge. And I was having a conversation with Henry Ellis about that last night, about how they really get insurance companies to recognize the guidelines and maybe get the academy to agree to use them for authorization. So there's still some challenges there, but the, the emphasis on using research to change clinical practice is incredibly important. You know, there's an article from about 15 years ago that said a new standard emerges in the literature, and it takes an average of 17 years for the medical practice to adapt 
that new standard. And, you know, the, the focus on clinical practice guidelines, hope we can drop that 17 years to three, four, or five to get the message out. But um, I think the Academy's done a pretty good job. Um, pause, it's interesting because the Academy would tell me that we prefer doing clinical practice guidelines with POSN members more than other, other subspecialty society because the POSN members, they're committed to quality and they're not as focused on the economic interests of the organization because that getting back to that, the priority list, mm-hmm. patient, family first, community second, orthopedic surgeon for third. And they said it's not hard to convince POSN members that if the evidence says we shouldn't be doing this, then we'll, as a group, commit to doing that, and we won't have an argument over, well, we don't like the literature because of this, so that literature is not relevant. It's more, okay, let's, let's, let's get all POSN members to change. And so the POSN community, I think, is easier to change, in part because they're not the pediatric orthopedic surgery, surgeon society. They're the pediatric orthopedic society in North America, which is we're here to serve the patient's community and family that we have the privilege to be part of. Mm-hmm. And so that cultural focus is maybe a little bit different than some other groups. There are other good groups, subspecialty groups, who are doing good work as well, but I think POSNA is unique in that aspect. Um, I think the other thing that POSNA is trying to do is the POSNA Safe Surgery Program, and I probably should give a disclaimer, sort of you and Nick, yeah. you and I have been there from the beginning, right? I think the initial term was probably a phone call, you and I and, and yeah. some other amazing yeah. QSVI team members, uh, you know, Matt Ochin, you, uh, Dan Cicado, um, you know, a lot of the people were kind of believed in this from the beginning. It was a matter of working out the logistics, but... There are lots of organizations trying to judge, judge the quality of what clinicians do, and a lot of clinicians get upset that, well, how come NISQIP or how come U.S. News and World Report or how come Health Grades or Truven or LeapFrog, you know, how come someone else is judging it? Why aren't we doing it ourselves? Because we're getting metrics. Todd Milbrand has this wonderful page. He's already published a paper presented about treating a femur fracture within 12 or 18 hours of admission is better for children's outcomes. And actually, in adult multiple comorbidity patients, yes, early surgery has better outcomes, but that doesn't apply to children. And there's data showing that it makes them, if you fix that kid's free for 12 hours or 24 hours, 36 hours, it, there's no yep. difference in outcome in an otherwise healthy child. But this is an example of metrics that were well-intended and applied to pediatric orthopedics and weren't really based in evidence. And so a lot of what POSNA Safe Surgery Program was about is we want to set metrics for our organization that POSNA surgeons and subspecialty committees, you, QSVI Spine, you know, some, uh, yeah, Henry Ellis, uh, yeah. Jennifer Beck on sports, you know, other people in those areas say, we think these things matter. And if you want to have a high-quality Pete sports program, Pete's trauma program, Pete's spine program, Pete's foot and ankle, Pete's hand, you know, Christine Ho, some of the work she's done on quality for hand. Um, if you want to raise the bar, these are things you should pick. And so... We had experts develop them. We then vetted them with the rest. So the spine people would look at the trauma metrics yep. and vice versa. So we would all sort of internally and externally vet uh, these things. But it was POSNA surgeons saying these things matter and they're not irrelevant. And they're feasible, provided you get the resources you need. And so POSNA, I think, has, I don't know of other organizations that are actually, I don't want to say pushing their surgeons, but challenging and inspiring their surgeons to say we should do these things at our center Another motive behind PSSP, Positive Safe Surgery Program, is many of our surgeons want to do these things. They don't have the resources. And so we are going to provide a list of here are 25 metrics that your system should do, and you want to do them. But you've got the resources to apply or develop 10 of them. You can go to your administration and say, we want to be a top-performing Positive Safe Surgery Program. We need support to meet 
these other 15 metrics. Can you give us support, which is usually staff time, resources, or whatever. Uh, and so it gives you a lever as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon to say, our society says these are metrics we should all meet. We need the resources to meet them because we want to be a top-performing, positive-safe surgery program certified or designated, whatever we're going to call it. We want to be one of those performing centers. And so you can go to your administration and say, I need these resources. So a big part of quality improvement is actually getting the resources to do it because you have a practice to run it. We can't expect you to do all these things on your own. You can't take a day and a half a week to drive these improvements. You need the administrative staffing support, and sometimes that means hiring a staff person. We got Stanford this last year. We now have a designated VQAPI, Value Quality Assurance Performance Improvement staff person. We got That's amazing. 0.2 FTE. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, 0.4 FTE of a staff person's time to now help Steve Frick and I and Callie Tylston and John Boris and Megan Emery and all the people in our division to really drive value, quality assurance, and performance improvement. And you know, part of we and part of getting them to improve that is our business proposal to the administration, including the pause and safe surgery program. These are the elements that we want to have in our program. Help us get there. Yeah. And we're trying to provide that leverage for you as an orthopedic surgeon to go to your administrator and say, we want to be a top performing positive safe surgery program. We need these resources. Please give them to us. So, uh, so I love it. Obviously, I was part of the, the genesis yeah, of it as well. Um, and, but one of the struggles that I faced early on, and you may have, although, again, it, you being sort of the, the top of that food chain, maybe less so, is the hospital's priority from a standings, from a ranking standpoint, is to U.S. News. And, and people have used the 18-hour rule uh, to give them a trauma room in the morning, which has very little to do with care of that individual patient. To your point, pinning an elbow within 18 hours for most elbows, nailing a femur in 18 hours for most femurs makes very little difference um, in the peds world. And uh, But it did give people who didn't have a first start trauma room that trauma room. And so there was the leverage, but that's an efficiency benefit, not necessarily well, a clinical benefit always. Yeah. And so I guess the question is that the, the hospitals are so uh, wedded to the ranking system that U.S. News uh, was, has put forward, and we were focused on improving care and we were, and the and the metrics that we put together were were care based, and it was a little bit difficult for me going to my administration saying, but these are the things that really matter. We understand that U.S. News is ranking these, but these are the things that matter. How did you make that work at Stanford so that they saw the fact that this was patient centric stuff that our organization, that our leadership put together, as opposed to U.S. News? Yeah, and I think there's a couple layers on that. Uh, one, uh, you're right. Uh, a lot of the oxygen. <laughs> that the administrators breathe is U.S. News and World Report. They're all chasing that. And they're, they're, and, and I, I admire what U.S. News and World Report is trying to do. Their, their goals are admirable. Their implementation is not always what it could be. You know, their strategy is, it's, <laughs> the idea is great. Strategy is so-so. Operations is not great. Um, but the goal is, is a good one. And we're trying to take that quality goal but make it really much more applicable to surgeons. And the other thing I would say is that the quality of life because you have to look at the quality of your workforce. And part of the positive safe surgery program is also, yeah, we don't need to do those, those femur fractures in 10 or 12 hours, but to make surgeons come in at 10 o'clock at night is not sustainable. And it's disruptive to the rest of the practice, and it's disruptive to the nursing staff and everyone else. Now, granted, there are times when we need to come in at the middle of the night. There are super condors. I still could yeah. wait till a.m. Uh, I'll be there in 20 minutes. You know, um, But there are some things that we don't, and we come in because the OR does not accommodate us. And making nursing staff and clinicians come in in the middle of the night who still have a regular work day the next day is, is just not sustainable. And 
And so burnout is you know part of making things more sustainable. Um, also, making families have surgery at two in the morning is is not the best interest of families unless it's truly urgent or an emergent case. And so um, that's one of the practicalities of it. The other thing I'd say about positive safe surgery program, as opposed to U.S. News and World Report, is one of the fallacies of U.S. News and World Report is ranking. And I'm not against ranking. I think you know we all got grades and there's value to to, to rank, but. In the absence of risk adjustment, which the resources required to do risk adjustment adequately are enormous, it's just really hard to rank people when you don't risk adjust what they're doing. And some people have harder tests, and yet we're expect- everyone supposedly gets the same test, and we have different patients and different comorbidities, and so ranking is, is challenging. Positive safe surgery program, partly from the beginning, the logistical errors in ranking, just from a statistical point of view, we just said we're not going to do the ranking thing. We would rather set aspirational goals and say, these are things that we want you to be able to have in your system to provide high-quality care. And I'm not going to rank you number one and me number two and they number three. If we all meet that, then we're all going to get a a top rank for that. Now, could we eventually progress to a ranking thing in the future? Maybe. I, I don't know if ranking is actually the best way to drive quality improvement psychologically. I think the best way to think of ranking is that we all want to be top performing and our challenge is to make the difference between the top performing centers and the bottom performing centers. The difference between those two is statistically meaningless. And so I'd rather take the approach of let's create aspirational goals for every center and give every center the moral support, the encouragement, and the administrative resources to meet those goals. And as we all get better, guess what? We're going we're gonna to elevate the bar. If everyone's meeting all 23 or 25 of the metrics, let's create better metrics. Let, because the metrics driven by research experience and outcome experience, five years from now, what we think is important is going to be different than what we thought was now. That doesn't mean we'll forget our old metrics, but there's going to be new metrics. And so the pause of safe surgery program is going to evolve. But the focus on ranking, I'd rather create an opportunity for everyone to be a top-tier performer. And the difference between number one and number 50 doesn't matter because it's statistically meaningless. Let's get good resources for every center. Let's provide the same high-quality standard of pediatric orthopedic care anywhere a positive member happens to be and give the empowerment and the data and the leverage to go to the administration and say, help me get there. Yeah, well, you're, I mean, raising tides, uh, raise all ships, right? And, and, but it's, I think it's a great point because when we came up with that uh, for, on Spine, one of them was an antibiotic, you know, sort of a, a package, if you will, for antibiotics um, prior to spine surgery, which has now become far right. away gold standard. And so probably at some point needs to be revisited and look at the next the next iteration of it. Um, so I think it's great. I, I did want to come back because one of the things that is so unique about our world um, in looking at things like that, at looking at value-based medicine is the fact, and you, you were sort of alluding to this a second ago, that we have a pretty broad spectrum of disease. And so mm-hmm. like as a spine yeah. guy, right, you can benchmark me against my peers in idiopathic scoli. You can really benchmark me against my peers in neuromuscular scoli. But how about the skeletal, the, the, the Larson syndrome skeletal dysplasia who happens to have a bad spine issue or Morchios or something like that? How do we create value with these like orphan conditions that we all see on a, on a regular basis, regular enough basis that we're, we can have, I mean, right now we're actually missing a conference on complex care and arthrogryposis OI, and I forget what the other one is. Yeah. So mucopolysaccharidosis. So we have that enough to the point that we have that a, a panel on that at our conference, but rare enough that the rest of the world doesn't see it as, you know, something worth sort of putting resources for yeah. towards from a quality standpoint. You know, I think the, value standpoint. The, the value of the electronic medical record, mm-hmm. um, the ability to do multi-center collaborations exists. We 
the promise is there, and I think we're going to look back five, ten years from now and realize that you know we're in sort of the we're in about the Windows ninety five stage. Yeah, you guys remember <laughs> Windows ninety five? We had these crude yes. drop down menus, but at the time Windows ninety five with these drop down menu screens was just revolutionary. You weren't typing in command lines to to implement a new program. You had command, you had selections and menus, and you had nested menus within nested menus. Um, I think we're going to be that much further ahead in five and ten years, where our ability to be part of multi-center data sharing with appropriate uh, data sharing with appropriate de-identification is going to be there. And so I think studying the rare conditions, none of us have the power, if you will, to study rare conditions, but 50 of us do, provided we can share records and do so in an appropriate de-identified way. And I think that's where we're going to really start making differences and we're going to create standard care pathways. So you're going to do, you're going to have an MPS, MPF, uh, MPS or OI or uh, arthrogoposis pathway that's very similar to other centers, and you'll all agree on what you think is the best pathway, but then you're going to look at the outcomes, and when there's a deviation from the pathway, you're going to say, oh, you know, that center is getting a little better outcome. Let's look at that, follow it for a year or two. You know, that seems to be better. And you go back and say, let's modify our clinical practice guideline to adapt that new change, which has shown an innovation. And so I think that's where we're going to go. I mean, we started that OCD is kind of, if you look at the numbers numerically, it's, it kind of qualifies for, it's sort of between, it's not quite orphan, but it's close to an orphan status because it's not that common. But I think we've really changed the treatment and management of OCD is we have a lot more questions that remain unanswered. But I knew as a clinician, I'm seeing a lot of this, but I'm not seeing enough to change the outcome of the mm-hmm. disease. I need 15 or 20 centers or 25 centers to study this. And so I think the EMR will allow us to do that in the very near future. And if we can get REDCap and PROMS seamlessly integrated, and I was in Singapore recently uh, having a conversation with some of the young faculty there, a guy named Andrew Young, who talked about um, they're developing a chatbot program to get because they're now finding that uh, you can send chatbots to teenagers through their text messaging, and guess what? They're filling out PROMS with a chatbot, and the chatbot is you program it, and it'll keep reminding you with the message it seems like it's coming from a human, but it's not. It's coming from an algorithm that will track if they filled the 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 prom out. And if they missed a part of the prom, it'll send them a reminder automatically. There's no human having to take the time to check all this, which we know it takes an enormous amount of time. And so I think that's where we're going. And eventually we'll have rare diseases, we'll have enough rare diseases pulled together with appropriate proms. We'll have some general health proms, but maybe some disease specific proms for all these measures. And we'll be able to val- develop and validate those proms much more quickly. That's where I think we're going. It's an, an, I think the future of healthcare is more exciting now than it was when I was a med student in terms of we're going to understand disease better, and we're going to understand our outcomes better, and we're going to continuously get feedback. And AI is going to be a big part of that. Yeah, we're I was going to ask feedback. about that. We're going to get feedback to get better. Yeah, and, and I know that, that the organization has sort of emphasized that a bit. Um, from a research, from a data collection standpoint, we were talking uh, with Manaj last night, Ramachandran, who yeah. I know visited you, um, and obviously you're sort of in probably the epicenter of, of yeah. at least of, of, of our country's uh, focus on AI, but the ability to pull records uh, in a HIPAA-compliant way to combine you know, the work that you're doing at your center and our, we're doing at our center, and then to put it together so these, these less common diseases uh, are, are not as uncommon as we, as we think. Yeah. Uh, well, they're, they're definitely they're uncommon, yeah. but the ability to pull results yep. uh, makes a common condition, at least from a statistical analytical view, it's not so uncommon because we can pull small numbers from a large number of centers to get a larger pool. Yeah, yeah. So I want to finish up a little bit uh, and talk about 
uh, you're in the presidential line, which is spectacular and, and I think well-deserved. But as I've gotten to know, you also know you're a very busy guy and you've got, you wear a lot of hats. I mean, looking through sort of your roles at Stanford, looking through your clinical or knowing your clinical practice a little bit, and then also knowing that you like to ride bikes for long periods of time in the woods. Um, it's a lot to balance. And so I'm curious what the decision was or was like or has been like and and um what you're sort of what you were looking to to accomplish within your uh travel through the presidency and how you balance that with all the other things you're trying to accomplish at stanford and also balance your home life you know balance is elusive yeah. and you have to you have to actually manage your balance i mean it's why they say it's balanced because if you lose track you're out of balance uh we're all in a kind of a, it's very easy to tip one way or another. But um, a big part of it is, is being part of teams and recognizing the value of teams and giving credit to other people all the time and rarely taking credit for yourself because most of our success in life, we might think from an egocentric point of view that, wow, I worked really hard and I'm really talented. And, and, and there, there are some maybe cases where that's true, but most of success in life, I think, is because you're part of an effective team and you get to work with people who believe in something and if you surround yourself with good people and inspire them and give them credit for doing remarkable work um, people do remarkable things and I think the thing I enjoy most about my current job is just sort of look at the playing field and look at the players and you know how can I maybe be a little better coach uh, to help this team do things and so um, I think just really look for good teammates and mentor them, foster them, acknowledge them, give them credit. You know, one thing I learned early on in my career is the best way to get a good idea accepted is let other people get credit for it. And I freely try to come up with an idea and then encourage other people to sort of take it on or take credit for it. I don't care. You know, I don't care if I get credit for it. That doesn't, that's not really relevant. The, the relevance is, is the good idea getting implemented and who cares who gets the credit for it? You know, we're all dust, right? I mean... <laughs> 10 years from now, 100 years, who really cares? But it's a good idea, got traction, and, and really makes a difference, and that's the most important thing. Whether or not you get credit for it, who cares? Um, but I think finding good teammates, being good to your teammates, supporting them, helping them be balanced um, is really important. You know, One of the things that I would say is remarkable about working at Stanford is Steve and I, Frick and I, Steve Frick and I became teammates when we were fellows, and we've always been teammates. We've always closely followed each other's career, remained personal and professional friends and the opportunity to join Steve, you know, five and a half years ago at Stanford. Um, we, when we were fellows, we said, you know, we, we should work together some stage. We, we agreed on that. We didn't have a plan other than we should, we should work with each other someday. And we said, well, we'll find a way to do it. And, and here we are, you know, it took 18, 19 years or whatever between fellowship and actually joining together. But, uh, finding good teammates is really important in many things in life. Finding a good partner, you know, I have a good partner, which has helped. Uh, Steve's been an amazing partner and my faculty members. I mean, i I have wonderful people at Stanford. You, you know, Callie's here. You yeah. know, you've worked with John Voorhees, but I got a whole list of people, Charles Chan, Molly Meadows, James Gamble, Larry Rinsky, Megan Emery, Jeff Young, uh, James Policy. I hope I'm not. Uh, <laughs> Megan Emery, Emily Krauss. Um, uh, I have an athletic trainer I work with named Kate Harbachek, who's just truly exceptional. She's now running our value Quapi program, you know, just remarkable people. And so I have the privilege of working with remarkable people, as I did I had some remarkable people in, in Boise as well. And so, but really support the team around you because it's really not about you. You know, Steve said that when he was president of Paz, and he said, leadership, you have to remember, leadership is not about you anymore. It's about everyone else. And uh, 
just try to find good teams because if you if you try to do everything on your own, you're going to get burned out. If you have teammates to help you and, and empower them and celebrate with them, oh, that was great. Like Kelly Tileston, she's taken over Positive Safe Surgery Program. I I couldn't be more grateful and, and happy for what she's going to do and to watch her grow and to watch her make the program better than what you and I started. Kelly is going to, yeah. Yeah. she's just going to take it to another level. Yeah. So, uh, you know, finding good teammates is really important. And, uh, you know, maybe I didn't really fully hit the balance question. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm always a little bit on the edge of being out of balance. I'm, I'm taking things off my plate now, or I'm trying to distribute or delegate things to people who are capable. And so that's another thing is that learn to delegate. Because really when you delegate, you're, you're frequently creating an opportunity for other people to grow and to learn and to flourish and then to take on bigger things. And so you give people, it's kind of like residents in the OR, you give people greater responsibility and greater autonomy as they're capable of doing that safely. And uh, the same thing applies for building teams around you. You know, pass things on and expect people to eventually surpass you. Yep. You know, Callie is going to surpass me. John Voorhees is going to surpass me and Steve. We know that. And, and Steve and I are excited to see what Callie and John and other people, we have other people in our division. Megan Emery is doing wonderful things with ed- education, both for fellows and residents. And so watching those people flourish and grow around you is, I think, part of avoiding burnout and trying to find balance. Yeah. Um, well, it's a little bit early because uh, you haven't sort of gotten to this point yet, but I've ad- I've had other presidents actually in uh, at, the, at IPOS who I've interviewed, and I've talked to them about sort of their vision. And I remember uh, talking to Jeff Sawyer before his year. Have you thought, or how much thought have you put into sort of what the the theme of your year is? Um, you know, we've had Ford together, and um, you know, Min had his, and Michael had his, and everybody's got one. Have you thought about sort of what the theme of your year is going to be? Yeah, I'm, uh, they all have nice kind of short, <laughs> slogans. catchy term <laughs> slogans to go with it, and so I have the luxury of sort of thinking about that a little yeah. more. I probably got about six months before yeah. I have to uh, think about that. But I'm, um, you know, I, I like the short catchy slogans, uh, so I, I'm not quite there yet. But I think um, you know, cer- certainly everyone getting better together and doing it in a team-based approach is going to be part of that theme. You know, there, um, If I can look back on anything that I might impact on PASA is this, we fully integrate the quality value mission into our organization, and we're willing to say we're going to actively get involved in the value and the quality assessment of providing care to children. Um, if, I, if, if I can change the the direction of the of the aircraft carrier a little bit where we all think that's part of our everyday job we all want to be really good surgeons we all want to be really good technicians what we do which is absolutely critical to our value equation but um, if we can really think about the value and really start paying attention to costs because there's this concept and there's articles written on this now that the term is you know we talk about drug toxicity and there's there's you know ld50s and you know what's too what's too toxic Financial toxicity is a real problem in healthcare. You know, one thing I know, having siblings who are school teachers and landscape architects and a military a Navy guy, I mean, my siblings worry about the cost of healthcare. They, they know families who have become bankrupt because of healthcare, and they're all nervous about how am I going to pay my healthcare costs. And we have lots of families who choose not to get healthcare because it's either healthcare or something else. And I'm trying to save for retirement. I got a, I got a kid who's going away to college next year. And I got a car payment due, um, and healthcare financial toxicity is something that we have to take on and recognize. And with our health systems, because our health system, we, we don't have a lot of influence on what things are charged in our health systems. And so we've got to work actively with our supply chains, our administrative teams to make healthcare more value focused. And if POSNA can be one of the orthopedic leaders in that area, along with that quality focus, you know, value is quality divided by cost. Let's, I, I, ho- I wish we could 
switch from quality to V, value, because value includes quality, but we, we've got to be um, cost aware. Yep. We're too agnostic. Well, cost is not my, yeah, that's not my job. Cost is not my job. I think we have to start saying cost is my job. Which is one, one of the, going back to your sort of point at the beginning about why PEDS is a little bit different, it's, it's one of the challenges with PEDS is that we do put patient, community, family, and then cost is oftentimes like fourth or fifth because we right. want so much for the right thing for the, for the child and the family that the cost is somewhat uh, overlooked. And I think that your point of moving from quality to value because it does have, um, puts cost in perspective is, is really important. Especially if, if families are choosing to avoid health care yeah. as a cost, and they are. And that yeah. then affects ch- uh, child that outcomes. That affects the child yeah. outcome, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so if we can make that, that transition. Uh, but the focus on quality in POSNA, and I, I heard that from the academy all the time when we were doing our clinical practice guidelines and appropriate utilization criteria and performance measures, that the POSNA people are really easy to work with. And as POSNA members, I don't think we sometimes realize how that cultural commitment of ours to family and children and community uh, is an enormous asset. But when, I, when you hear that from outside groups who say, wow, working with POSNA members, it's a joy um, working with them. That's an asset we don't fully realize. And if we can take that asset and recognize that cost and value are part of that child focus, parent focus, community focus, maybe that'll help us get there a little quicker. But we, we are committed to children and parents and family and community. You know, those are really... And surgeons last. I mean, we, we are committed to our surgeons, but most of what we do as a pause organization is we train, we educate, and we support research. We don't advocate a lot individually for what individual surgeons need. We advocate for our children, families, community needs, and I think that's something that we can really take advantage of. Yeah. I don't have to change that culture. I don't have to create that cultural focus in pause. I think it's existed from day one. Yeah, 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 and you just need to highlight, and you need to, you know, to to shine a light on it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes you have to repeat the message. You know, you've got to sometimes repetition as as painful as it to hear. Sometimes, sometimes you have to say it ten or twenty times before it really sinks in. But I think that value focus would really help Posna. And uh, if if I can maybe change that value focus a bit, because um, I'm not sure if you know being president of Posna was fully aligned with what I had planned to do for the next five years when. I got a call, no, I don't know, a year ago or so about this. Uh, I actually had some other plans in the future, and it didn't include this. And so part of saying, okay, well, I'll do this, because uh, the person who asked me um, said, we really think that the quality value focus is something POSNA needs to do, and we think you're the right person to help us you know, maintain or maybe enhance that focus a little bit. So that was probably the, the inspiration for me to say, well, okay, I'm going to change. I had a different plan. My wife and I had a different plan that didn't include this. And so... Yeah. Um, that value opportunity, that positive opportunity, and also just um, you know, pause is kind of my home. I, you know, I love the group. I love IPOS. I love the pause meeting. I love the community. Um, I feel like I have this really, even though I don't know every positive member personally, I feel like I know the cultural underpinnings of everyone who's in this organization. And so I feel like I'm connected to all 1,500. Is it 1,594 members? Yeah, I think as of <laughs> officially, it, as it of was. Yeah, a couple days ago, we're 1,594 members. Um, so I feel like I, I sort of know every member because I don't think people would be in this organization if we didn't share that those three levels of commitment in that order. Yeah, yeah, similar values. Similar yeah. values. Yeah. yeah. So. so. 
Well, Kevin, this has been spectacular. I've uh, really enjoyed it. We had a chance to talk for 45 minutes last night, and that was also awesome. So I feel sort of blessed to have had this time in the last uh, 24 hours to, yeah. to spend with you. Um, uh, thank you for this. Thanks for all the work you're doing for the organization, obviously, and glad we got, got a chance to do this. Yeah, and, and Nick, it's uh, been a real pleasure. And um, someone said something to me years ago that they didn't learn anything when they were talking. They only learned when they were listening. And, and, I, and I appreciate your thoughtful questions. Uh, I feel like I, uh, every time I talk to you, I learn something. And uh, I'm learning that more and more that the less I talk, the more I let other people talk, the more I learn. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons I like reading so much because when you're reading, you're fully focused and listening to someone else who, who obviously wrote the book. And uh, but I appreciate your questions and I appreciate the, the, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the... Um, the community that Pawson brings to all of us. It's a very um, inspirational thing. It's, it's easy to find energy um, to be part of such an organization because the organization continues to sort of fill you up. Yeah, it really does. This meeting, I, I'm, um, I'm tired because I've been getting a little less sleep than I'd like <laughs> uh, when I go to these meetings, but the, 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 the energy and the enthusiasm and the collegiality here is quite remarkable and the, the speakers and the topics and, and the way they communicate and why they're the why behind what POSNA is remarkable and that comes out in the talks and it comes out in the programs and it comes out in the dialogue of, of the why you know why are we doing this and we all know it's for a better word for children and families and it's nice to be part of that yeah the reunion in the community on Tuesday and Wednesday when everybody gets to see each other it, it really does you know you can have a uh, a tough slog sometimes at home dealing with all the challenges and then you get to see your people and it sort of reinvigorates you and re-energizes you so it's really cool yeah, totally agree. so yeah. well thanks again and uh enjoy the rest of the meeting great thanks nick pleasure